welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We that are here are here to hear the Word of God today, and we will hear it from Luke chapter 21 as we continue through the greatest prophecy Jesus ever gave. He speaks now about a generation that will see the ending of it all. Verse 29 of Luke 21, let us hear the Word of God. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's holy and eternal word. Let us hear it. Father, come and speak to us through this time-spanning text. And may we understand Jesus more deeply at the end and long for his appearing as the Bible teaches us to do. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as you know, for some weeks now, we've been in Luke 21 and the majority of this chapter is Christ's greatest prophecy. Jesus Christ, according to Moses, would be the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth, and he was. He spoke forth divine truth every time he opened his mouth, and prophets not only speak forth truth from God, they sometimes foretell events. They, they foretell truth, and Jesus did that many times, He spoke 50 different times about his second coming. I don't know if you know that or not. It was a big, big part of his preaching. And here in Luke 21, and this is also mirrored in Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13, was uh, the second longest string of teaching Jesus ever gave, only second only to the Sermon on the Mount. And here he gives a great prophecy about the times of the future. Now, uh, Jesus predicted the future as God Almighty, and he did it with complete confidence, perfect knowledge, and total accuracy. Aren't you glad we can trust every word that falls from the lips of our Lord? But when it comes to predicting the future on the human scale, um, that can be risky business. As you're probably aware, uh, a lot of uh, predictions have been made by very wise people on the human spectrum over history, and they've turned into some hilarious outcomes. Uh, Predicting the future can be risky business if you're just human. And uh, a lot of people have collected over the years uh, some hilarious predictions that seemed very weighty at the time. They, They seemed to be, well, of course that would be true, made by intellectuals and others, and uh, time proved them to be fools. Here's just a a short sampling of ones that I saw this week. Um, William Orton, president of Western Union, said in 1876, this telephone idea 
has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. <laughs> oh, hang on a second. I think somebody's pinging me. No, I'm good. I'm good. Wow. New York Times, 1936. A rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> okay, good. Daryl Zanuck, who was a movie producer, co-founder of 20th Century Fox in 1946, said, television, that nah, won't last because people are going to get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. <laughs> okay, that worked out well. Here's a great uh, technical, technical mind. Thomas Watson, former president of IBM, said in 1943, quote, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> Robert Metcalf, a little later in 1995, this is pretty recent, Robert Metcalf, founder of 3Com, a uh, technological giant at that time, said in 1995, I predict the internet is going to catastrophically, how do you say that? Catastrophically. Thank you. Would you guys like to finish this for me? Because I, I, thank you. I predict the internet will collapse, he said, in 1996. So, yeah, right. And then finally, this is a great one. This was said in 1899. Everything that can be invented has been invented. In 1899. But here's the thing. The guy that said it was named Charles H. Duell, and he was the commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office at the time. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. Ten million patents later, uh, I think, yeah. So uh, predicting the future, risky business for humans, well known for bad predictions. Not so when it comes to the word of God. Even though Bible prophecy is often mocked or, or uh, wrongly and unfairly criticized and falsely criticized, when it comes to the word of God, the prophecies of the word of God are solid. You know, I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that when, when certain portions of the scripture were written. 30% of the scripture when it was breathed out and when it was recorded by whoever wrote it, whether it was Isaiah or John, uh, 30% of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written, particularly Old Testament portions. In other words, it foretold events that had not happened. And yet, as we've, as we've seen over time, the, the prophecies that the Bible contains that, re, that involved past history, future to the time they were written, but now we've seen history turn, and we've seen whether history confirmed what the prophets foretold 100% accurate. This was one of the things that, when it was shown to me when I was a skeptic, convinced me that I could not say that the Bible was the invention or the writing of people. When I saw Bible prophecy from the Old Testament pages fulfilled in secular history books, I had to admit, this has got to be a divine book. And that was a big part of my submitting to its gospel. Now, the second coming is particularly referred to, that may surprise you, it's maybe the dominant theme of, of Bible prophecy in both Testaments, the, the final return of Jesus there are more references to the second coming than the first coming, the arrival of Christ as Savior and his earthly life and ministry by eight to one. Eight to one. 
There are over 1,800 different references or allusions to the second coming of Christ if you put both testaments together. 17 Old Testament books prominently describe factors or, or dimensions of the final coming of Christ. And 23 of the 27 New Testament books, books allude to it or teach very specifically on it. It's an astounding theme in the Word of God And that's why uh, when you teach the whole counsel of God, you're going to arrive at the some dimension of the return of Jesus pretty frequently. If you read the Bible through, you'll see it. If you teach the Bible through, you'll teach it. And that's why I do. I'm not obsessed with it or fixated on it. I'm just teaching it as it rises. And here in the greatest prophecy Jesus ever made, it's all about his return 1,800 plus different references in both Testaments. So that's a lot of prophecy to fulfill. Now, how confident can we be that God is going to fulfill all 1,800 direct statements or allusions to to, to the second coming of Jesus? Well, I'm just as confident about that as I am about how he fulfilled all the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus. Remember I said it's about eight to one, but... There were many prophecies and predictions and descriptions of what would happen when Jesus came the first time. And as I said, I began to see that God fulfills Old Testament prophecies in real history. And then I looked at the life of Jesus, and I had to admit that he fulfilled these prophecies in the life of Jesus in a way that I couldn't explain. See, the story of Jesus saturates the the meta-narrative of the Bible And prophecies of his first coming are found throughout the Old Testament over and over again. Direct prophecies or allusions to him that might be, you might call them a micro-reference that could only be satisfied in his first arrival. Many people in the Bible wrote about his first coming. Many events hint at the work that he would accomplish. One scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 references in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe the the arrival of Messiah on the planet the first time. Christ's miraculous birth, his life, his teachings, his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Dr. Albert Alfred Edersheim, the, the Old Testament scholar of note about the life of Jesus, found 456 Old Testament verses referring to his first coming, his, his earthly ministry. He wrote a book on it called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Conservatively, scholars believe Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his first arrival in his earthly ministry. I mean, in fact, it's a difficult question to to conclude just how many prophetic words Jesus fulfilled when he came the first time. I mean, do you count only direct messianic prophecies or do you count how many times those prophecies were repeated? I I think a prophecy is a prophecy. If one prophet stated it and another repeated it, it actually confirms the strength of that prophecy. I count them both. I count allusions and indirect references to the ministry of Christ that were only fulfilled by him in history. And what about types? 
A type is a prophetic symbol, a person or a thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or a thing that we see more clearly in, in the New Testament. There's so many in the Bible that the, in the Old Testament record, I won't even go through the list that describe the, the earthly ministry, the reality became clear in Jesus Christ, that one man in history. So however you want to count them, they were all fulfilled to the letter the first time. Now here's my reasoning. This is God's word. This was, in, was placed in, in its reality and in its form by God's Holy Spirit. And if, if the promises of Jesus Christ, however you count them, were all fulfilled to the letter in his earthly life and ministry at his first coming, and there are promises at an eight-to-one level about his second coming that may be hard for you to believe, but will they all be fulfilled to the letter at his second coming? What does logic tell you? What does consistency tell you? What does the nature of God tell you? What does the authority of Scripture tell you? Your answer has to be yes. That's why it's so exciting to walk in the Word of God and not to ignore or diminish the greatness of the return of Jesus Christ and biblical prophecy. That's how confident I am that what he has said about the second coming of Christ is just as accurate and will be just as fulfilled, if I can use that phrase. And I think that's how confident Jesus was, because look at the last verse of the text we're going to study today, verse 33 of Luke 21. He said, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. And specifically here, he's talking about the words of his prophecy about his return, the return of the Son of Man. So whatever you read in your Bible about his second coming is just as reliable as what you know from your Bible about his first coming. Bible prophecy Jesus gave it the stamp of his authority. Now, so far in this great prophecy of Jesus over the last weeks, we're now in part six of our understanding of it. We've seen that this is a sweeping discourse. It describes events in the time of the apostles that first heard it. And then in narrative and metaphorical language also describes the experience of believers over all of recorded time until the very end of time when Jesus himself, the Son of Man, returns, verse 27. So from verse 7 all the way through verse 27, there is this great description that answers the question the disciples asked about what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age. Jesus gives a discourse over the times of history. He includes what I have decided and many other Bible commentators as well have seen as a series of signs that he describes will occur over that time. And we've studied them and I'll touch on them briefly because they give context to what I'll now teach. And having talked about these signs, and I believe I've taught them as six different signs, then he now comes in verse 29, having described the six signs, he now shifts into a parable about the place in time where all of this is going to come to a conclusion. He talks in this parable about a generation, verse 32, that will not pass away unto all, until all has taken place, describing the, the signs that he talked about. This has been a contested passage among Bible teachers ever since it's been opened. Contested or avoided. <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm going to teach it from my conviction. I'm certainly not avoiding it because my call is to teach the whole counsel of God. So we're going to go into it, and I'm just sim- simply going to take a look at the message of the parable, first of all. That's where the majority of our time will be. And then I want to take us into a meditation for our own hearts about how this ancient message about future time can impact your believing heart this morning, especially as we approach communion. So let's now take, for the body of our time together, a look at the message of this parable. Get your Bible open or turned on. (laughs) See, I wonder who predicted that this whole thing about iPhones isn't going to pan out either. Yeah, Yeah, human predictions, so trustworthy, yeah? Turn on that thing that people said would never work. Open up your printed Bible, and let's look at this wonderful parable. It's, um, I, I want to give you a little reminder of the context, and then we'll walk into three descriptions or understandings about the parable. And remember that this is a long teaching that was caused by a question. In fact, it's the longest answer, as I've said repeatedly, to a question Jesus ever gave. The question was in verse 7, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, I said that the longer version of this teaching hour that Jesus had on the Mount of Olives that Wednesday night in the last week of his life is contained in Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew gives us a bit more detail, and I've mentioned it. I'll mention again 24 verse 3, where the, the, the content of their question is clearer. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. So we know that this was a question that was vaulting time. They didn't just know how much time it was going to vault. They thought it would be a fairly short time between the time that Jesus left and he would come again as Messiah and King over Israel and the earth. It turned out there would be a long spread of time. We're now in approximately 2,000 years of that time rolling. The disciples, humanly at that point, didn't understand that, but they knew he was Messiah and that he was going to come back. He was going to take over the earth. He was going to rule Israel and, and restore Israel and keep his promise promises to Israel, and the kingdom of God would come to earth in the way that Jesus told them to pray about it. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so they asked him, what will be the sign that all of this is about to occur? And Jesus uh, honors their question. Doesn't tell them, by the way, that Israel is no longer part of the plan and that they're no longer part of the plan. He honors their question and he gives them a deeper answer than they were expecting. He gives them not one sign, but signs. He talks about the whole arc of history. Now, uh, remember, he talked about six signs and I broke them out for you. And it's important that I remind you about this because the way they're broken out in the whole passage gives you an understanding about this parable. So stick with me. I've taught you so far that he said that there will first of all be three broader signs that will take place beginning in the life of the disciples, but then transiting over history after them and into our time. What are the three broad signs? Verse 8, the first one was spiritual deception would begin to rise. He talks there uh, in uh, in verse 4, actually, in verses 5, many, no, I'm sorry, 
I'm, I'm in Matthew 24. Back to Luke 21. Beginning at verse 8, talks about don't, not being deceived. Many false prophets arising. Spiritual deception, Jesus said, would start in their ministry and would increase over time. Remember, all of these first three signs were described by Matthew as birth pains. They get more frequent and more intense as time passes and you get closer to the great event of Christ's visible return. So Jesus said three broad signs will begin and move into time as, as we know it. Spiritual deception would be the first one. That's increasing today. I made a case for that. And it's increased over time. It will really increase in the time of the end, in the tribulation time. It will get to unbelievable heights. Secondly, human and natural upheavals. Those were verses 9 to 11 about wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes only increasing over the human record of time. I made a case that that has certainly been proven true in what we know about history. And those will dramatically increase as the tribulation time arrives. Again, just as Jesus predicted. The birth pains closer together, more intense. When will they be closer and more intense than ever in history in the seven-year tribulation time? And then thirdly, he said there will be rising persecution in verse 10, farther along before all this, verse 12, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you and that will escalate. And I certainly believe we can say that that's happening today and will escalate dramatically in the tribulation. So these are three broad signs that started in the life of the apostles. They tasted the sword first, but all believers will taste it up until the end and they will roll and increase over time. Then there is more, uh, one more specific sign. The fourth, as I think, linked into history biblically, and this isn't occurring yet. This will occur in the future. The fourth sign he begins in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Here he's speaking about the future surrounding of Jerusalem by the armies of the world under, under the leadership of the Antichrist, and that is a time yet to come. For reasons I'll explain in a moment, this is not referring to the first destruction of Jerusalem that, that we know of that happened after that in A.D. 70 by one Roman army, the Roman army of Titus. This is speaking because of things I'll say later about a, a, a surrounding of Jerusalem yet to come in the very middle of the tribulation time. This is a specific sign. It hasn't happened in our experience, but it will happen very clearly in the middle of the tribulation. And those who read this text at that time will have no problem identifying that it's happening to Jerusalem. What will be the, the dimensions of this? As Matthew and Mark tell us, it will be led by the Antichrist, the figure who will rise, dominate the world, deceive the world into a false peace in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, even deceiving Israel so that Israel comes to a peace with him under his rulership. They compromise their integrity and follow this Antichrist. They will be at such peace that they'll rebuild their temple. Offerings and sacrifices will be, re be regun. By the way, all the plans are in place in Israel today for that to happen. The blueprints for the new temple are already written. Millions upon millions of dollars already raised. All the temple implements have already been made according to Old Testament law. Oh, there, will, there is a great desire to be, rebuild the temple in, in Israel today. The Bible says that will happen. A temple will re be rebuilt. But striding into that temple in the middle of the tribulation time, 
will be the Antichrist who, according to Daniel's prophecy at the very middle of that seven-year period, and Matthew and Mark pointed out, he will come in and desolate the temple, this abomination of desolation. He'll raise himself up to be worshipped. He'll place an idol of himself in the middle of that temple and cause the whole world to worship no one but him. That's a trigger point. It's a specific event, as you read the Bible, that will trigger the middle of the tribulation, and it will trigger the final outpouring of God's greatest judgments upon a world that would worship the Antichrist in place of the true Christ. And then all history is on a timer in a sense that soon Jesus will finally return. That's a specific sign. The first three were broad and grew worse over time and will grow worse. That one is tied to the middle of a very special seven-year period in my belief, in my view. Now all of that describes the the experience and and the the arc of history. Now, when that happens, the Antichrist is going to lead a movement of nations against Israel, whom he will hate, because they're going to resist this great call to worship him, many of them. Some will worship him, most will not. Israel will become an an archenemy of the Antichrist, and he will persuade the nations of the world to surround Jerusalem. They'll come against Jerusalem in the middle of that period. Jerusalem will be desolated, according to verse 20. People will flee from it. Many Jews will be taken captive, according to verse 24, into the nations of the world. Other Bible prophecies confirm that will happen in the midst of the tribulation. And the city will be trodden underfoot until the end of the times of the Gentiles, which happens when Jesus returns visibly. So we're talking here about the last three and a half years of the tribulation, in my view. So it's a very specific sign Nobody alive at the time who has Luke 21 in front of them and Matthew 24 at their fingertips will be able to say, this, we didn't see this coming. It will be lived out, in, perhaps on their iPhone screens, in real time. Everyone living in Jerusalem will know it. And every person who's become a believer in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God will see it and know it to have, have happened. Now, as this happens, it will, it will move the, times, the timing of the tribulation on. And then Jesus gave us two final signs. So there's three broad signs I talked about over accruing history since the time of the disciples. One specific sign, yet future, in the very middle of the tribulation. And the last two signs I taught you, verses 25 through 28, 27, talk about the final signs. At the end of the tribulation, just before Jesus returns, the, the, the fifth sign was astronomic upheaval, where Jesus said, just before he visibly returns, there are going to be signs and sun and moon and stars, verse 25, on the earth, great distress. The powers of the heavens shake in verse 26. That's astronomical upheaval in my book. And then finally, the final sign will be the Son of Man himself, the Lord Jesus, verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He comes back and takes over and judges the nations. So that's how it was, is all going to, f- to flow out, and that's what I've taught you. Now, I went over that in detail again because you have to understand now how this parable fits and what the times are that the parable's talking about. A lot of people today talk about something called the arc of history. Maybe you've heard politicians use that phrase. It's very popular. The idea is that man is a fundamentally good 
being. And he is continuing to be able to build his own future through his own works and his own increasing perfection. It's just a matter of time as man builds the arc of history sort of like a bridge into uh, an ideal world. Well, man is corrupt. Man is inherently destructive. He's not building an arc of history. But God, on the other hand, stands above it all. God couldn't give a rip about what you're hammering together as an arc of history. God has his plan for the planet. And it has nothing to do with what man wants or achieves. God's plan for the planet is talked about in this chapter, is the point I'm making. And they asked for answers. They said, what would be the sign of all this? And Jesus didn't insult them or or then give them something that was not understandable. He gave them a clear, understandable answer. Many people teach that you can't teach Luke 21 because either it happened in the past when Rome took over in AD 70, or it's allegorical language that we really can't even understand all that it refers to. Let's move on to more important, pressing things. I don't think that Jesus Christ, with a clear question from the disciples, would have given them an unclear answer. He spoke in clear words, in understandable words, not mysterious, and it had an impact on them. They went out and lived with this assurance and preached until they died, most violently. So it had an impact on them. Imagine if you were them. If I heard this, I wouldn't want Jesus to stop talking. I would have, at the end of it, said, can't we know even more? I can sure Peter did. Right at the end, say, oh, Lord, <laughs> I know you've gotten to your return and the end of everything, but there's, is there anything more you can tell? I would have wanted to know even more. Well, I believe that Jesus at the end here says that there is one generation coming who will know more. They'll be at the very end, and they'll see it all. And now we get to the parable, having gone through all the signs. Verse 29, and... He told them a parable. So he connects the parable to the prophecies. Now, what's a parable? A parable is a story that shows a truth or teaches a truth. It's often something that's used in comparison. If you want to maybe use a more modern word, you could use the word analogy. It's like this. And Jesus uses this story to show a truth, this image to communicate something like it. Now we get into the message of the parable, three things like I told you I would do. We'll talk about the parable itself, just go through the details. It's only two verses, really one. Yeah, two verses. And then we'll talk about the point of it. Jesus applies it right in the middle. And then finally, we'll talk about the power of it, its impact. The parable itself, this might be the simplest parable ever made, ever, ever told by Jesus. He told some that were very distinctly difficult to understand, intentionally so, based on his hearers. But as he often did with those that were believers in him, he gave the insight to the parable here. But the parable is so simple that a four-year-old could understand it. I mean, my, my granddaughter's almost four years old, three, three some years old, and And she would get it because she understands already that when you walk out into the backyard at Grandpa's house, 
and the bushes look a little different, and he walks you out there for the first time at a certain time of the year, and he runs your little fingers up the side of the branches, and, and you get to this little nub that's coming out. Grandpa's taught her, that's a bud. And that's the beginning of a leaf. And the leaf leads to a flower. And when do all the flowers come out? Summertime. She understands that. If she read this, she would understand what Jesus is saying here. It's the simplest parable in the world. He said, look at the fig tree. At all the trees. He spread it out to the, any tree you walk past at a certain season. As soon as they come out in leaf, so they go past bud stage and they're really into leaf stage. So leaf is, is, is moving into the, the development of spring. You see for yourselves, the word come out there is pushed out in the Greek. It means pushed out kind of suddenly. So you, you, you suddenly notice a change in the world around you. There's leaves on the trees. They're pushing out. He says, obviously, you see for yourselves. In other words, it's so obvious to you, you'll complete this, and you'll know that, and maybe even he did that with the disciples. You guys know that what is coming? Peter in the back, summer! (laughs) All the other guys said, we knew Peter would say it, so we didn't say anything. (laughs) And so so certain things happen to, to betray the arrival of certain other things. So when you see it, you know it was so obvious. Summer is near. And of course, that's our Pacific Northwest experiences, right? Our seasons are weird here. At least I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I come from another dimension. Yes, the fourth dimension called California. <laughs> wow, the dimension of weird. But the weather more constant there. Here, our weather arrives and start, starts and stops and, and other things. But I've noticed here that sometimes spring can spring on you pretty quickly. We get a little bit of a warm snap. What happens? It it actually accelerates. When you see it spring into action, you know that it will happen. And of course, it's interesting. Jesus was teaching in the springtime there in Israel. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And perhaps all around him that had already begun to push forth. So he makes this obvious point. That's the parable. Here's the point. He says, as soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. There's the parable, verses 29 and 30. Now he gets to the point, verse 31. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now he returns to the prophecies. These prophecies are the these things. So, so, so also, at the beginning of verse 31 means, now I'm going to explain it to you. Told, told you this childlike parable about leaves telling us summer's coming. So also, it's like this. It's, it's an analogy. It's, it's a comparative teaching. So also, when you see these things for your, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. In Matthew and Mark, the language ad, he added was that, that the Son of Man is at the very gates. He's about to come back. They'd ask for a sign. He's given them plenty to know. 
Now, remember, I, I, I told you that, that this, this revolves around an understanding of the whole passage. So the big question interpretively comes in verse 31. What was he referring to when he said these things? This is why there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of agendas brought to this passage, what have you. But remember, I just taught you and reviewed that in this chapter and in this teaching, Jesus taught that history would progress gradually over time and that three broad signs would occur in the time of the apostles and throughout our history, and we're seeing them today, the first three signs. And then it would progress very quickly in the last part of history, beginning in the specific sign, the fourth sign where, where Jerusalem was surrounded, and then the, these tremendous signs on the earth, uh, in the heavens rather, and then the final return of the Son of Man. Where is that happening? In my opinion, as a Bible teacher, that's the last portion of the tribulation time. That's happening really quickly, almost right at the event. Now, what could he possibly be referring to here about these things? I think he's the only way the passage makes sense is when he says these things in verse 31, you go back to verse 20, and he's referring to the final three events at the end of time. So when you see these things, beginning with Jerusalem being surrounded by armies at the middle of the tribulation and the Antichrist standing and proclaiming himself as God, the greatest sign of, of all time that God's judgment was about to fall and history was going to close is going to be that. That's, it can only refer to these final three signs. The Antichrist in the temple, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the great signs in the heavens at the very end of the tribulation, and then Jesus himself arriving. The disciples are representative of a future group of people here in the tribulation. Remember what's happened at the end of time. The church is, in my belief, not in this passage, it's particular, at verse 20 at any rate, and I've mentioned this two or three times now. The church is taken out of the wrath of the tribulation by Christ's promise, the Antichrist will rise and the judgments of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 and onward begin to fall on a Christ-hating earth. But even then, the gospel will be preached miraculously. Over that period, probably the greatest number of people who ever come to Christ in history will come to Christ and then quickly die for Christ. But there will be many believers converted and they will be suffering during the time of the tribulation and I believe when he says, when you see these things taking place, he's talking about, in verse 31, what believers in the tribulation will see. In Matthew, twice, he says, let the reader understand all these things. So this is for those in the far future of when this text was put into our, our scripture. Jesus, in fact, says, once, see, I have told you all of this in advance. This is for the comfort of those going through it in that age. It'll be for them. Now, this is why Jesus, in fact, specifies a particular generation, because next he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. 
He gets even more specific. The, the, the signs beginning at verse 20 through verse 28 could only be in the last half of the tribulation period, as we know the rest of the Bible tells us. And then he gets, and he talks about the fact that there is a generation that will see these things take place. And in fact, it says this, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. All of what? These final signs leading up to his very visible return. Now, as I said, there's been a lot of speculation about which generation in history is being spoken of in this passage. Lots of disagreement. Lots of formulaizing and thinking about it. There have uh, been some that, that suggest that this is all past history. They're called preterists in their interpretation. Preterist means in the past. They believe that most of Bible history, most of the book of Revelation, has already occurred in the past. And they locate this whole text, and they say that the generation spoken about there was the generation of the disciples who 40 years later would see Jerusalem defeated in 70 AD, and that's where all this belongs. It's just old history. It has nothing to do with prophetic future, but that's impossible textually and interpretively because if you look at Matthew 24 and Mark 13, they add great details. There is no way that nation rose against nation and kingdom rose against kingdom in that age. Historically, we don't see it. None of the plagues and the earthquakes and the terrors that we see described here in these signs occurred at that time. The sun was not darkened. The moon was not hidden. The stars did not fall. The seas and and the powers of the heavens were not shaken according to the prophecies in verse 25 and onward. And certainly Jesus did not return in a great and mighty cloud of glory. So it's impossible to take that past moment in history and say that it is all that Jesus is describing about what would have happened. No, you just can't do that. At the best, I think I agree with some other commentators that say what happened in AD 70 was kind of a historical preview of what was going to happen in fullness yet to come. Others have said, well, it's it's, gener- it's a generation afterward, and they've tied it to certain times in history, or they've tied it to the emergence of Israel as a nation because they say the fig tree re- regarded that. Well, Jesus doesn't even allow that here because he's not only talking about the fig tree, which was a symbol of Israel, he said all the trees. So it wasn't tied to Israel's arrival as a nation in 1948, as some sincerely, but, but, but I, I don't think correctly have done. So what is it? Well, I think you want to try and keep it simple. These things are what he said. And the generation that sees the the final signs, beginning at verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and defeated and, 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 and trodden underfoot by the nations yet again in the final time of the tribulation, and when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple as never before, the Antichrist himself, that's clearly what he's talking about. And you'll know that as, as, as this happens, you're in the final portion of the time known as the tribulation, and this is all going to start happening very quickly now. And if you're in that generation, yeah, it'll all happen pretty quickly after that, and you will see all these things take place. This is for people who have faith in Messiah yet into the future. I don't think we'll be here to be that generation. I think it's the generation that's alive during the 
the final portion of the tribulation. Talking about people have come to faith after the rapture of the church, during the time of the tribulation. They're going to see these things happen to Jerusalem. They're going to see the, the, the great signs in the sky. They'll see the world in immense distress. They'll see people fainting to death from fear. And then it'll all happen, and he will come. They're going to be the most persecuted believers in history, but they're also going to be, in a sense, the most blessed because they'll be that generation. I think this is written for them. That's my view. Well, I've talked about the parable and the point. Let me give you a final word about the power of it all. Verse 33, heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why did he add that on there? He said it numerous times in his teaching ministry that he's God. And as God, he speaks for God. His words are prophetic and true, and not one of them will fail. Why does he include it here? I, I again think he's included it for that generation of believers who will have this assurance when they most need it. The whole earth is going to feel like the earth is going to pass away at that time. And Jesus is saying, yes, according to my Father's plan for the planet, the heaven and the earth will pass away. Second Peter 3 says he is going to take the whole thing and then kind of dissolve it and bring something new. Even that, Jesus said, will happen, but you can count on one thing never happening, and that's my word failing. Oh, my words will not pass away. See, that generation is going to need to know that as bad as the signs that they're seeing with Jerusalem and the, the skies torn up and, and the universe shaking, as bad as the signs that they're seeing and the times that they're living in are, he is going to be coming quickly. He will be coming. His word proves it. You can count on him. And when he comes, he'll be coming soon. So Jesus says his word and this promise is stronger than heaven and earth. Now we bank on that today. For our generation of Christians, I believe, I, I trust in the word that the Bible tells me that in a moment of time, Jesus could come for me in the church. I believe that could happen today. Why? Because I believe his word doesn't fail. Just in the same way after the church is gone and believers are, are dying and suffering in the time of the tribulation, when, these see, when they see these signs, these final signs, they won't go back to the scripture and know Jesus said we'd see these things. And he said, when we do, he's coming soon. And his word never fails. Hold on. Matthew 24, he said to that generation, when you see this, know I'm at the very gates. I'm at the door. Hold on, I will come. Well, that's how much I believe in prophecy. Well, let me go to the final. I've given you the message of the parable. Now let me just take you to a meditation for your heart. Let me bring it into the right now. We've gone over the whole, the whole plan for the planet. But let's go to this morning and you... How can this prophecy comfort you today? You know, say, the secular world and even some people in the evangelical world look at people that, that study biblical prophecy as kind of odd observers of the times looking for the world to come to, the end, to an end and a little bit excited about it. You misunderstand. You see, we're not looking for the world to come to an end we're really just hoping for someone to come back. There's a big difference between obsessing over the events of a dying world 
and hoping for the return of a living king. Oh, there's a big difference. One writer I read read this week said it this way we're not just looking for something to happen we're looking for someone to come and when we see these things begin to come to pass either in our times in the early signs or when they see them in the final signs we're not to drop our heads in discouragement or shake our heads in despair but do what Jesus said in verse 28 now when these things begin to take place straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near that's the word for us today was the word, it's the word for them in the far future in absolute application. But as we see Christ's promises coming true, we know that he's one day closer. I take heart from that. And believers over the ages have done, almost 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago now, J.C. Ryle, a great preacher and writer of the past, said this, When these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws near, Jesus said. For those people in the future, however terrible the signs of Christ's second coming may be to the enemies of God, and we know that people on the earth without Christ are just going to be absolutely, literally scared to death. These signs need not strike terror, he writes, into the heart of the true believer. They ought rather to fill him with joy. They ought to remind him that his complete deliverance from sin, the world, and the devil is close at hand. It's closer. And he's soon going to bid an eternal farewell to sickness and sorrow and death and temptation. Oh, that day is coming, that very day when the unconverted man shall lose everything. And it'll be the same day when the believer shall gain everything. The very hour when the worldly man's hopes will perish will be the hour when the believer's hope will be exchanged for joyful certainty. The servant of God should often look forward to Christ's second coming, he wrote. He'll find the thought of that great day will sustain him under all the trials and persecutions of this present life. Yet a little while, let him remember, and he who shall come will come and will not tarry. The words of Isaiah shall be fulfilled. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and will remove the disgrace of his people. Oh, indeed, until he comes, let us proclaim his death until he comes. It's all about hope. It's not about obsessing about a dying planet. It's about looking for a living Lord. That's one of the reasons why God's word says when we have communion, we proclaim the Lord's death to one another, and then it says, until he what? Comes. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll see that wonderful text. And we'll proclaim that death through its remembrance, the same death that will cause him to come and rescue us forever. 